Welcome everyone, I'm your host Greg McEwen and I am here with you on this journey to learn. Have you ever wondered what kind of communication is necessary in order to be able to break through to the next level, to have real innovation? What does it take? Well, today's guest is the absolutely perfect person to answer that question. I'm not sure there's anyone who could answer it better who's alive today. This is Ed Catmull. He's the co-founder of Pixar, but went on to lead both Pixar and Disney's animation studios in what we could describe as the second golden era of animation. You know the names of these movies, Toy Story, A Bug's Life, Monsters, Inc., Finding Nemo, The Incredibles, Cars, Ratatouille, Wally, and on and on and on. He not only helped to create a new industry, he also created a new standard within animation the world over. By the end of this episode, you will have insights into how to actually have conversations that produce not just efficiency or productivity, but innovation, invention, breakthrough, creativity. Let's get to it. Thank you to everyone who has subscribed to this podcast. And if you are not one of those people, subscribe right now. Pause, subscribe, and then make it easy on yourself to get new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday. Now, this sounds like a segue, but it's not. You retired in 2019. Is that correct? Did yes. I get that right? And what has your involvement at Pixar been since then? Are you still involved, but in a different role? Has it eventually led to, to very little involvement or how would you describe your current connection? I've already put people in place to succeed me. I'd put them, worked on that for a long time. And when you do that, okay, it's time to let them do it. But then at the same time, you know, I just get retired and then COVID hits, which amplifies streaming. So the people that solve problems are still there, but to be honest, like a whole bunch of things hit all at once. But I wasn't there for it because with COVID, then it was essentially theirs to solve. And, you know, these are hard problems, but these are also good problem-solving people. Okay, but so I'm that's... Not, not all. I have no exposure. Okay, okay got it. So, so I, I'm actually familiar with some of the work that you did over those years before retirement to try to solve what I was told you believed was the biggest single threat to Pixar going forward, which is that the original group of directors is not going to be there. And every movie had some point of serious inflection point where those original group ends up coming back together and trying to go through a problem-solving process to get it where you want it to be. And so that you'd taken it really seriously to try to address this problem of, well, what happens once we all go? How can it continue? So first of all, let's see if what I understand is uh, approximately right. That's sort of how you saw the biggest challenge and that this is why you invested so much to try to think about the succession planning and the processes to put in place. Is that the correct reading of how you were working on it through those years? Yeah, because we knew that 
there was one group that was doing, it's like the back group for everybody and teaching others and so forth. And then as we brought others in, we were finding that they again had, they again had a, a very different set of characteristics. And one has to assume that they bring something to the table we didn't see and it's new. And we can't have the company continue to be even any kind of replica of the first one, because that isn't the way it works if you're doing something creative. Mm-hmm. Other people have to change. So the principles were, okay, how do we find people who are passionate and support them? And, and the one thing I did know was that starting way back when I was in graduate school and then at New York Tech and then at Lucasfilm and then Steve and then with Disney, I say, I really had support. So I felt like, okay, my job, our job was to provide support for new people and for new ways of doing things. But that takes time to do that. So my support wasn't because one day somebody showed up and did something. It's like, no, this continued over years. And for every one of us, it's like, this is a process. Nobody magically rose to the top. You know, even Steve, we started talking about Steve, but Steve went through years of going through things and growing and as a result of the, the things that he learned over time, because he had all these elements in place that let him learn, then he basically could transform. Well, what do we do for other people? How are we supporting them? How do we think about it? And that's what we tried to set up and, you know, at every level of the company. It wasn't just the creative side. How do we think about the technical side? How do we think about the production management or marketing? It's really curious to look at it now from a few years on. I know that Steve was affected by what happened at Disney when Walt Disney died unexpectedly and the challenges that faced the company without the visionary, without the person that was pushing and and polishing and prodding and probing to make it better. And so it was one of the reasons he built Apple University was to try and make sure that the thinking could continue and the understanding of why decisions were made and so on. Meanwhile, the same thing has been happening at Pixar, or at least one could argue this is the case, because that original group of unusually gifted directors and then also just that process of decision-making together, you know, you've all had to shift past it. And I wonder... How would you evaluate Pixar in those years? I mean, it's a tricky question I'm asking. I get that. How well has Pixar continued to do the things that led to Pixar's extraordinary success over those, that first generation? Well, I, the thing I liked was all the way up until I left, they were still making some really uh, great films. Now, they were, there were a lot of the original people still there, but the, the other people are now engaged and involved with it, including new people that weren't part of the original group. And so the ideal one is there's an intermingling, but it's also a passing on, it's, not, it's probably not right to say passing on cultural values. It's more like the value of is that we're going to continue to change and that what we're doing now can't be like it was at the beginning. Right. We can't do, we can't be the first at anything again. You have to be the first mm-hmm. at something else. And with each one of them, it was like, okay, a refinement. You go back and you look at it. Did this work? 
So then there's the question, do we keep on being or working on being self-aware of what works and what doesn't work? Because my own view is that some people are looking for the sweet spot because at one side, like you, you hang on to what worked and you don't let go. And the other is you go off in some wild ass and there's that place you get where you are, you are addressing new things. But that's not a stable place. In fact, if you look at mm-hmm. in this industry, and I would argue a lot of industries, then the leadership is changing, the expertise is changing, the technology is changing, the customers are changing, expectations changing. There is nothing in this picture that is stable. Now, if you deeply understand that, then you think about how you have to address problems in a different way. You're not trying to find the new stable point. You're trying to be the kind of company that's robust and is continuing to change. I love everything you just described, and I want to be more precise in the question. Do you think Pixar is doing as well today as they did when you were there with the original Brain Trust? Do you think it has continued in the same level of success, or do you see some cracks in the in the system, let's say? Well, one of the ways that we were measured in the past, there was a succession of four films in a row that redefined Pixar, not as a very good animation studio, as a company that produced Pixar film, which caught me off guard. So what does that mean? Well, what it meant was that as we were having successful film that are being reviewed, because there are other animated films that are out there. Sure. At some point, our worry was we were going to produce something which didn't do well. And that was, you know, right after the first film, that was my worry. What's going to happen? Because you can't keep producing good film. And I knew that people were, it's almost like gunning for So I guess you could see that some of the reviewers like, nobody deserves this. Suddenly you're not the underdog anymore. You're the king of the classroom. And so it's a, it becomes a little cooler to vote against you. But, but this is what you're saying was happening. Carry on. So I, I could see this building and I thought, okay, now we're, at some point, they're going to turn this, you know, not good is going to happen. And then our eighth film, which came out, was Ratatouille. And then it yep. was Wally and Toy Story 3. Toy Story 3. Those four films in a row were undeniably great film. And basically it was a, it kind of blew through this. And what I realized after this point, we weren't compared with other renovation companies. We were a different category. And because it, it's still true, like it, when people look at it, they compare us against Pixar. Mm-hmm. And even subsequent to that period of a film came out, it wasn't, didn't live up to the Pixar standard. Then it was, that was how they talked about it. So now with that in mind, when COVID hit and they switched to streaming, one of the things which was part of the definition of what a film was when the film opened, there was a lot of public things about the opening of the film, the box office, you know, it's how to, how it's reviewed, all those things. And that, well, well, everything changed when I think the next four films were released on streaming. It changed the perceptions of what people do. And then for a lot of films, like do you go to the theaters because, oh, we'll just wait until it's streamed. So what that meant was that kind of thing got in the way. 
do I think the phones are extremely good? Yes, but that sort of buzz that happens, yeah, it wasn't the same as it was. So that was one of those, they say, they were hit with some things there. And I'm on the outside looking at it, thinking, well, it's one of the consequences of change, actually. I'm talking about change. I, of course, in no way would ever predicted a pandemic. Sure. But I didn't know that the streaming was going to have a, a major impact. This episode is sponsored by Shopify. Selling a little or a lot. <coughs> Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. So whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, whenever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. So sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, which is your AI-powered all-star. In my experience with every business that I have built, including this podcast, there are breakthrough moments, and those moments are often the result of finding the right partner. And I think that's a way to think about Shopify, because no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash greg, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash greg now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash greg. This episode is brought to you by JustWorks. Are you still doing payroll manually in your business? Do you know someone who is? Because it is time to change that with with an exclusive offer. JustWorks supports small businesses with simple, seamless solutions like integrated payroll. For a limited time only, try out their payroll plan for one month free. As a reliable and flexible platform, JustWorks earns back time so you can focus on running your small business with big confidence. Designed to be flexible, JustWorks can support teams of one to as many as your small business hires, including contractors. In just 30 minutes, Set up payroll that streamlines paying your team, saves time, mitigates errors, and is desktop and mobile friendly. You can even integrate time tracking and benefits that support running your small business with big confidence. Don't miss your chance to get one month free by visiting justworks.com slash Greg. Secure the limited time offer and start letting JustWorks run your payroll so you don't have to. Start your free month now at justworks.com slash Greg. What was the most challenging movie that you were a part of? Well, there were a few times in which we changed directors. So it, it had the question, it was that if you're asking for somebody to commit to make it happen and to pour their souls into it, then, and you're supporting them. So that's the rule. You have to support them. And we all know that everything to begin with doesn't work very well. We always say that when we're giving their reviews, but they, they don't work very well. Sure. And we know that and we're protecting them. What does it mean to say, okay, we're not going to 
protected anymore. So yeah, at what point do you go, okay, we can't keep protecting you. It's actually a different person that's needed here. Yeah. So we have done that a few times and because there is one rule, it's not a brain trust rule, but it's that, that the one thing that a director can't do is to lose the confidence of their entire team. Once you sense that had happened, it's time to make a change. Yes. Now, what normally happens is if there are problems, and there are problems, then you are, in, in some cases, they just need the time to solve the problem. So, I mean, some are fall easily in that category. And then for some, it's okay, maybe the team isn't working around. So you, you do some adjustments, but frankly, these are all private, confidential. You can add somebody to the team because you're not trying to do anything to harm this creative team that's leading it, and you're trying to support them. That's what they support me. If that doesn't work, and they lose the team, then that's when you have to do something larger. And each one is a very different story. So like with Ratatouille, that was a, a wonderful man that conceived the idea. It was a high-risk idea. We were very proud of the fact that we took on a very high-risk idea. Right. And we believe that some of them, and not all of them, but some of them should fall into this category. Like they would fail the elevator test. And this would be one of the short of the elevator test, which means that you've got to give it some room to solve the problem because solving harder problems requires more creativity. So if you take on the, the challenge, you say, okay, we're, we're going to solve this problem. So in this case, the basic premise was about art and the love of art. We call it cooking, but actually it's an, it's an artistic statement about passion. And the story was stuck. It was in cotton circle and they couldn't get out of it. And so we did have to make a change. The, the basic premise of the movie that was in the film as it came out was the premise as originally pitched. The look of the characters was from that, led by that director. So everything about the final film looked like the fruition of the original idea, but they were caught in a cynical and they couldn't find their way out of the cycle. Brought in Brad Bird, who loved the concept of the passion of the artist. That's what drew him in to be able to, to be willing even. So we, and he met with a friend of ours, his, who's a, a writer, not even at Pixar. And they came up with the key breakthrough. And once they did that, it broke this cycle that was in there. And all of a sudden, boom, it turned into this beautiful, magnificent gem. So that's not the art of other films. Right. So each one has a very different arc. And, and with Up, which is uh, P. Doctor's film, the final film bore no resemblance whatsoever to the original film. Wow. And you know, the thing is, it doesn't matter. We don't care. It's how do we have it so that we're enabling people to do something, which is great. Mm -hmm. Maybe solving the problem of the original idea or even evolving the idea and, and turning it into something that's different. And that's what it means to, to be sort of be open and creative and, and supportive. And at the same time, knowing, you know, you have no idea where this is going. So that's why I said each one is a different arc. Speaking of arcs, let's connect a few arcs here. So I think that there was one more rule that you used for brain trust that we didn't address. What was that rule? Oh, we go, when I'm with, it was peer to peer. This people in the room were people who had the respect for, from each other as filmmaker. That was one. So it's, Peer to peer, keep the power out, keep the candor, and we got the other. So, 
actually writing down these rules, it was trying to clarify them for others, but in, in our minds, like there is actually a total package. Yes. Right? Now, when I say it's a total package, there were other things because people did get lost in their own idea. Mm-hmm. They come to let go of it. I mentioned, you know, that outside poor flex D, but we did have a couple of other outside forces. One of them was for film. We could do an audience screening. Now, with products, there are times when you get feedback. Some people are really good about trying to get genuine feedback. Some people actually don't want it. In our case, we want it, but it comes late in the game. They're all just different mechanisms to try to get there. And in the case of Pixar and Disney, this is late in the game where Inside Out, which is, you know, this is great film, but honest, it was stuck at some point. And in this case, everybody loved it. They were excited about it, but, and everybody knew there was something and they couldn't figure out what was the problem. With all the outside forces, with all the inside forces, with the, all the creative strength, they couldn't figure out what the problem was. So the first time we said, let's go show it to the Disney Brain Trust. We kept them quite separate. We, we wanted to make sure that Disney had its own personality. They did things in different ways. We, they talked with each other. They can beg, borrow, and steal ideas from each other, but they didn't have to. Yes, I see. You wanted to keep it interdependent, but there was an independence underneath it. Yeah, they wanted each other to succeed. And everybody understood that if both of them were doing well, it was better for everybody. So there was no yes. jealous, whatever, so like that didn't happen. But we didn't actually show the movies to the Brain Trust. So the first time we showed it to the Brain Trust down there, and there are two people in particular who picked at the central problem that we had missed. The problem was that Joy was working extremely hard to get back to headquarters, which is where she belonged. Like she needed to be back there. But she was trying so hard to get there that she, it's almost like she appeared to be uh, selfish and self-centered. It was about her. The basic thing that was driving her was about her being back there. But the job was about getting her back there. So that's the reason <laughs> people missed it. So that's what the group down there sort of picked out. And then that was, once that was realized, then you could go to, and this is where you go to the deep level. You say, well, everybody else wants her back there. So if you think about a child and, you know, your child cries or is hurt or unhappy or sad, then a lot of parents would say, you know, having been there, where's my happy girl? Where's my happy boy? Because everybody else wants joy to be back there. So if everybody else wants it, they, they're the ones that can try to drive it, to mm-hmm. push that. Mm-hmm. So in this case, Joy didn't need to be that kind of force in the movie. It could come from others. And once that was in there, it became more profound because then as an adult, you can say, oh, I've been there because we have. And for child psychologists, that's one of the issues is some parents can't accept the fact that their child is depressed or unhappy or anything like that. Yeah, not accepting or understanding or affirming where they are actually at. And so you were able to connect with that human emotion. Yes. And when you do that, I said, okay, now this is a deeper movie. And so with those notes, Pete and his team could come back and make a large number of small changes. And now it really worked. 
we then said, okay, that worked. We were having problems in a film down at Disney, which was mm. Utopia had some serious problem. And so we thought, well, if it worked going down to uh, Disney, maybe we can do the reverse. So we brought it up to Pixar. And in this case, Andrew Stanton in particular, after saying nothing for 20 minutes, said something which actually blew the film open. Which was? In the original version, because the predators worked together, there was always the worry that predators might revert to their dangerous state. When they became adults, they needed to wear these collars and if they should measure their state of aggression or alarm, and then it would shock them. And the question was, okay, how does this society work? And the protagonist was the fox. And the arc of the story was that he was cynical. And by the end of the movie, he basically had learned that they were going to remove black collars as, as the element in the film. The course of the movie was to figure out why this wasn't necessary. But the film wasn't working at all. What got them stuck on it was there was a very powerful emotional scene where the polar bears would first place the collar on their child. It was sort of like a coming of age party. And, but for the parents, it was like, you know, it's kind of painful for them. And it's when the child realized this pain that came with becoming an adult. So when it was shown at Pixar, Andrew Denton, when he spoke up, he said, when I saw those collars, then I hated that city and there was nothing you could ever do to redeem it. This was inexcusable and it made the film inherently ever alike. So just boom, two before across the forehead. And the reason they were stuck on it was that they fell in love with that emotional thing. So they then went back and his view was, he wanted them to understand and trying to solve this problem. And it turns out there are people at Disney who had said that before, but they couldn't overcome the fact that they were stuck on something. Right. So in the end, it turns out Judy, the bunny became the protagonist and she mm -hmm. had a deeper story, which is to learn that she had some biases that she didn't know about and they came out and, and so that was a deeper and more relevant theme for the movie. But it came about because somebody else was actually able to brush aside something that even others had said before, but he couldn't push through it. Whatever it takes. Yes. Let me get to the truth of what works. Well, you're trying to get it right rather than be right. And many of these stories push to that theme, although it's not the only theme that we've covered. This episode is brought to you by Backblaze. And what I wish was brought to you today was a story about how Backblaze helped me recently to get all of my file back that was just eliminated, but I didn't have Backblaze at the time. And so a really important document that I had been working on for months has been deleted out of the cloud. And if I'd had Backblaze, just like over 55 billion files that they've helped customers restore, I'd be okay. So seriously, back up your stuff. Receive a fully featured, no risk free trial at backblaze.com forward slash Greg. That's B-A-C-K-B-L-A-Z-E.com forward slash Greg. You can go there, play with it, start protecting yourself from potential 
bad times. Start today. This episode is sponsored by Factor. Well, here we are. It's the new year. Is there any person listening to this who didn't eat a little too much of the wrong foods over the last few weeks through the holidays? Well, if there is someone, I'm not talking to you right now. Um, <laughs> because I'm, I'm talking to the people who want to get back on track. And uh, as part of that, I think Factor could be useful because Factor is one of these ready-to-eat meal delivery services. So it takes the stress out of creating your meals. And that's where Factor can be useful. So you get restaurant quality meals, but it's delivered right to your door without you having to think about it each and every day. Head to factormeals.com slash greg50 and use the code greg50, greg50 to get 50% off. That's code greg50 at factormeals.com slash greg50 to get 50% off. You've talked about the arc of a movie. We've talked also and began with the idea of the arc of Steve's life and particularly the arc of his career and how it shifted materially, but more than the media story about him. Let me just read one thing that you wrote, and then maybe if you could share with us the last time that you talked with him uh, on the phone and what that all meant. Uh, you write here, to let these media narratives drive the narrative about Steve is to miss the more important story. In the time I worked with Steve, he didn't just gain the kind of practical experience you would expect to acquire while running two dynamic, successful businesses. He also got smarter about when to stop pushing people and how to keep pushing them without... <clears throat> All right, I'm going to start reading the whole thing again. To let, these to let these media narratives drive Steve's story is to miss the more important story. In the time I worked with Steve, he didn't just gain the kind of practical experience you would expect to acquire while running two dynamic, successful businesses. He also got smarter about when to stop pushing people and how to keep pushing them if necessary without breaking them. He became fairer and wiser and his understanding of partnership deepened in large part because of his marriage to Laureen and his relationship with the children he loved so much. This shift didn't lead him to abandon his famous commitment to innovation. It solidified it. At the same time, he developed into a kinder, more self-aware leader. And I think Pixar played a role in that development. Could you maybe respond to that here and then share with us maybe the last time that you were able to speak with Steve and what that meant to you? Well, it was getting near the end. So he was engaged quite a bit up until he resigned from the board. Then we had few discussions since then. And, and then there was one time in which I was, you know, downstairs and I got the goodbye call and I knew what it was, you know, it was the, the thank you. And, but because he was so completely sharp and self-aware and through none of this, there was no delusion or wasn't trying to pull himself. He knew what was happening. So, and he was like, it's emotional for me, but that was, you know, he was going to his friends and just calling each of them. Thank you for sharing it. You're emotional now talking about it. Uh, yeah, and there, there, are, there are a few other emotional things too that I have regarding, you know, the things that I learned from him and working with him and the effect on me. 
that's why we when we start at the beginning, it's like I was in some ways a mentor for the life. I think about it, I'm the person who protected and challenged. And uh, again, it was part of growing my view of what my job was. It seems to me that it is a really unusual kind of collaboration that you had with Steve in a way that is exactly what one would hope from the best collaborations. Not just that you can create great things, do great things together, but that somehow it elevates beyond that, where you understand each other really at new levels and that you edify each other and that it becomes some kind of joy to work together, but it's more than the work itself. It, I may be reading too much into it, but it seems like that was the kind of long-term collaboration you had. It was beyond the work into something much more meaningful than that and something that changed you both. That's my read. The thing I feel is the case and was that for both of us, it was we're trying to do something which is as an impact and it's done well. And you do that by the relationships you have with people, the full acknowledgement of what they do and what they bring. And even though Pixar and Apple did it in different ways, at heart, there was that in common that we're not trying to do this because it's important to be in charge. It's important to do mm-hmm. something good. And I say that because I know that's the words that anybody might use about what they would want to do. But I think, okay, that is actually the way that the two places work. And I'm always, I'm I'm very aware also that sometimes the narrative turns around the visible people, like, you know, in our case, it could be directors or Steve, or because I've written a book around me, but I was always aware in in discussion with Steve, it's like a full appreciation for what others do. And the narrative about it is one thing, but how does that really work? And and how deep is the appreciation and the gratitude for your partners and your friends and and those you're with? And when I say the partners, it's even broader. Broader, it's like okay. In my case, like my friends in universities and in that community, it's like okay, what is this like? It always uh, worries me because sometimes the simplified story is the one that takes place, but. When I talked with Steve, and I'd say a lot of people don't think that he was doing this, but I know from the conversations, the way he talked about other people, and in particular, like those at Disney, where we were more likely to have discussions, like, you know, he actually had a deep appreciation for what others at the table. And, and by thinking that way and by bringing in what others brought and appreciate them, you are setting yourselves up for getting something which is good, something that's truthful, never easy. Nobody ever said it was going to be easy, but at least that the importance of it and the value of it was clear. And I'm kind of rambling here, but you know, it's, it's you know, we talk about the arc they went through. Well, actually there's are companies that have gone through arcs. Mm. These are complicated stories. They're rich. And I think that when they work well, it's because the people thought about it. And don't take for granted the people around them or the thing, politics. Or for that matter, even take for granted the accident that enabled them. Ed, these are, only to use your phrase, beautiful ramblings. 
very appreciative of your time today. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you, Greg. I really enjoyed talking with you. What is one idea you heard today that caught your attention? And who is one person you can share that insight with within the next 24 to 48 hours? If you haven't already yet, please sign up for the One Minute Wednesday. Join well over 100,000 people now who receive that newsletter every week. If you found value in this episode, please write a review on Apple Podcasts. The first five people to write a review of this episode will receive free access to the Essentialism Academy. Just go to essentialism.com forward slash podcast promo for more details. And I will see you next time. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.